Hi, everybody, and welcome to Completely Beatles. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. Uh, you might also know us from the Sneaky Dragon podcast. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. But if you if you want to know us from that, uh, that's another podcast that we do. We're completely over it. <laughs> we are. And we're also completely over the White Album. We had uh, our last two episodes. Uh, we're talking about that album. Yes. Now we're moving uh, on in the color scale. That's and right. And we're, we're going to Yellow Submarine. Yes. Now this is a this is an odd one because uh, none of the other albums, as far as I know, have repeated songs, or have they? Uh, that were on previous albums, whereas this one has two mm-hmm. songs that have been on previous albums. Yes. Yeah. This would be the first, and only that it doesn't even have like any singles that came out around it, so we have no singles to do either. It just it's a standalone album today, partly because it came out almost, just basically three months after the White Album came out. Okay. Now, as we do with every episode, uh, we set Actually, even the- more, less than that. All right. Uh, but, but we can we can incorporate it into this. Okay. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to make a bento box here, and I'm uh, <laughs> separating everything. Okay. Uh, we usually start with um with context. Where are the Beatles right now? Uh, what's going on? Well, we so, actually have, uh, we actually kind of have to go back in the past because we did talk about it. All right, let's we, all everyone let's all go back in the past. Let's go back in the past. We're even more in the past because we're right. talking about the Beatles, so obviously we're in the past. That's right. But even but more, we're more. Go, we're going to go more into the past, and. Uh, because remember we were talking about Revolver, and at that time, um, the Beatles had well, Brian Epstein had agreed for the Beatles to do a film that was going to be called uh, the, "A Talent for Loving," which was going to be a film. It was a uh, kind of a, a western, and it involved this. Um, it was a uh, what would you call it? Like a an overland horse race is what it was. It went from it went from the Rio Grande uh-huh. to Mexico City, and it was a real event. It took place in 1871. It was an actual thing that happened, and it, it was written by Richard Condon, who wrote uh, The Manchurian Candidate, one of the great films of the 60s. Right. And so he wrote, I guess it was from his book, and so they had, they adapted it into or developed it into a film. Now this is a and, western. Would this have been taking place in uh, America? Yes. Okay. And so the Beatles would have been like four. They would have been. They would have played four Liverpudlian lads who right. happened to be involved in the race. Okay. And I don't know if it would have been humorous or if it would have been dramatic. Wow! If it had it been never, dramatic, what an odd choice that would have been. And then one of them was going to get the to get the girl uh-huh. as well. So it was going to be the four of them, but only one of them could get the girl. And this was like always a problem with developing Beatles films is how do you develop a movie for four people who will all have equal equal well, parts? Let me in ask the film? you this question: in Previous films of the Beatles, did anyone get the girl? No, but Our in this night, film, no one help. There no. was there was no really there wasn't really a girl and and per se there is sort of a girl in in Help with Eleanor Braun's character, mm-hmm. but in Hard Day's Night there is no girl. Uh, Hard Day's Night is more kind of a it's kind of I don't know what you'd call it. It's almost like a document, a faux documentary in a way, with el- with kind of Marx Brother elements to it. And when I say that, I'm thinking of like them running outside the train, yelling at the guy who they were just in the carriage with, mm-hmm. and suddenly they're outside yelling at him through the window. Who's, you know, the, so. who's the famous silent movie star who uh, was chased by all the women? Uh, was, it was the Seven bat- Chances, that's a Buster Keaton film. Buster Keaton film, yeah, right. Yeah. That always reminded me of that. You know, okay. being chased by all the girls okay. in black okay. and white. Sure, yeah. yeah. And so... So that film worked okay in that way, but I guess they didn't want to do the same thing again. And so the problem with Help is that you have, basically what you have in Help is three supporting actors supporting Ringo's kind of main character. And so it's a very 
weird juggling act in that film well the other problem is there's no straight person in it yeah it's like they're they're hilarious yeah and then everyone else is a crazy funny character that's right and it's like well there's no grounding there's and nothing yeah. to bounce off there's no margaret dumont that's right you need a margaret dumont and to, margaret to... dumont for those of you who don't know groucho marx uh would always uh be the, doing that's his right. groucho stuff and well, she would be well i never and oh, that's right, that's right. Well, anyway any one of the characters chico or harpo right. or whoever or chico as he's supposed to be called but i think chico's a well save that, that for our marx cast that's right and so uh so what happened so what happened was basically is that yellow submarine was a compromise because they they put they put together all these like Brian Epstein kind of kept and not just him but Walter Shenson who produced the first two Beatles films they were like trying to develop scripts and stuff like that so they did a talent for loving and then the Beatles said no they didn't want to do that film and then they developed this other one which is really kind of weird something called the film was called Shades of a Personality and the These idea are of all it, very odd titles. Yeah. And the idea, well, I like a talent for loving, but it's a weird title when you know what it's about. Like a talent for loving, when I hear that name, I think, oh, it's kind of a period, like it's kind of a 60s piece, maybe kind of a kitchen sink kind of a story. You think with, Western horse race. Yeah, that's the first thing you think of when you think of talent for loving. And so this film, Shades of Personality, uh, which is actually was, the script was developed by this guy named named uh, Owen Holder, who wrote the uh, screenplay for A Funny Thing Happened to Me on the Way to the, Fo- the Forum. A Funny Thing Happened on a, the Way to the Forum, yeah. Which was a, a Richard Lester film. And so he was brought in to to do this script, and it's about a man played by one of the Beatles, although they hadn't decided who it would be, but it was probably going to be Ringo. Always Ringo. As always Ringo. Who suffered a three-way split personality. And so in the film, the other personalities would be played by the other Beatles. Oh. And so that was what, that was what it was going to be but the Beatles said no oh that's too bad like actually things got so uh, with their albums very in the mind and psychedelic I mm-hmm. could see how you could actually make that work that's yeah. uh, okay fair enough and so then in some parallel uh, universe that sure. film happened so then later in the 60s uh, probably around the time of, of Sgt. Pepper um, well it have to be that because um, this uh, Brian Epstein had something to do with the, the approach Joe Orton who I don't know if you know Jordan. He was a playwright, British playwright. Wrote Loot, nope. and he was quite a kind of famous. Um, okay. There's, and so he wrote this screenplay. And according to him, though, in his diaries, he says that Walter Shenson told him that they tried to develop the Three Musketeers for the Beatles as well, and they had approached uh, Bridget Bardot to play uh, Lady de Winter, who's the sort of villainous character mm-hmm. in the story. And so uh, I guess they said no to that as well. And so then they they brought in Joe Orton, and it sounds like what he was doing was working on. Uh, shades of a personality because he had this it had the same uh kind of it, he was given the script i guess with a one character with the being four personalities and he split them all up into four different people but what he did was he he uh mixed some elements of a novel he was writing called that he'd written called the silver bucket and another novel uh called the vision of gombold proval and he he combined them with this script and it became this uh it, script that involved adultery Rev- they, they were, they were uh, revolutionary, like guerrilla revolutionaries in the script, uh, fighting in the, the murder. They end up going to prison. They get caught having sex. Like all this, you know, so it's just a yeah. perfect Beatles film. <laughs> and uh, it was rejected by the Beatles, obviously. Yeah. Because what Paul McCartney said was it was gay. It was basically a film for gay people because well, Jordan was a homosexual. And mm-hmm. so he wrote the script. It was very, and Paul McCartney said, nothing against gay people. It's just that's not who we were. And so we were given the script, and we were kind of like, uh, 
what? So they just couldn't see themselves in that role. Yeah, that's right. That's not us. We are clearly Western horse racers. <laughs> horse racers, yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, Have you ever heard any of our albums? <laughs> We're a Western band. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, they just, when they got it, I mean, not only the parts that would completely give grandma and grandpa a heart attack... But just the fact that, you know, the way Jordan wrote it, it was just impossible okay. for the Beatles to see themselves in this Here's, in this my, here's my thing on this. Like, A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles are playing themselves. They're going to a concert. They're going to do, do a TV show. Mm-hmm. And girls are chasing them. I got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Help. James Bond spoof. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then you got your Help. But at least they're still, they're a band. Yeah. You know, and uh, all this stuff's going on. But they're a band. Mm-hmm. And then it just seems like all these other ideas are just like, Okay, we start on the moon. Your four <laughs> rocks that want to be found by astronauts. Yeah. It's just like, what what are people thinking? Like, uh, were there any mainstream Beatles ideas that actually made sense that were also in this mix, or were we just remembering all the crazy town ones? Well, to be fair to Orton, I mean, it was just a first draft that he was. Oh, understand. You know, the, and I think from the con- all these concepts, yeah, so, so a million miles away from like what you would. Well, he's he. The problem for him is he got he was killed by his lover Kenneth Halliwell, and so oh, was this the situation with with the hammer? Yeah, that's right. So uh, that later on people sort of connect with Maxwell Silver Hammer. Okay, yeah, well, it could be. Yeah, it could be. That could be. I never thought of that before, but yeah, yeah. Other other people have we mentioned that. I'm you not. You should have brought that up on the Abbey Road. Ah, uh, it's the first time we brought this up. <laughs> Maybe but, I'll bring it up again. Yeah. So he wasn't, and so uh, they tried to get other people to work on the script, but no one could get the tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people like Roger McGuff, who is a Liverpudlian uh, poet. He was in The Scaffold and and uh, with uh, Mike McGear, who was Paul McCartney's brother. And so they tried to bring other people to to try and work on it, but they couldn't, couldn't get Orton. And Orton also wrote an incredibly... He was a very verbal playwright. So the script is pretty much all talking, which the Beatles weren't all that comfortable with either because they yeah. weren't really actors. They were just playing themselves. I know, and you want to let them just riff a little bit, yeah. you know, and just yeah. be themselves. It feels That's like right. it feels like the people who wrote these had not honestly uh, heard the music, mm. you know? And the, yeah. I, you know, it seems like they had an idea already. Or seen the other films. Right, right. But, well, here's the thing. Help is a very different film than, but even than Help, Hard Day's Night. I mean, if you watch Help, you say, well, the best part of Help is when they're doing the, the, uh, the looping. Like that's when the movie really comes alive is when the Beatles are just improvising later on after the film is done and they're just standing in a studio goofing around and adding right. voices to it. Then it really is lively. You know? Like it, feel, it feels to me if you want to do a Beatles film and I'm just – let me pitch to the past here. It's like what's something they can rebel against? Yeah. Have them rebel against that thing. So, yeah. you know, and you make that thing the biggest thing, mm-hmm. you know, and like uh, we're kicking, you know, basically you're footloose for yeah. the most part. You know, yeah. you can't have rock and roll in this town. Well, we'll show you. And then, you know, you <laughs> have them being rebels. And, that, w- that would have been good. Yeah. Well, it's, it, doesn't that seem obvious? Like, uh, you know, if you're making a Beatles a guess, Beatles film, but, what are the Beatles? But even make for, the film about that. Don't take the Beatles and shove them into your old concept. But even for them, like if you they're look at... They're all leprechauns. Okay, we, and they're trying to grant wishes. We were talking about The Girl Can't Help It last week. And even though that film has some really great rock and rollers in it, they almost have nothing to do with the plot of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think the Beatles, that was what they most dreaded, was just being an adjunct to a script. Kind of like the Marx Brothers in, in A Day at the Opera or A Day at the Races, where... The attention comes to, it falls on the, the lovers, on the, the romantic element yeah. of the script. And the Marx Brothers are merely there as a sort of almost secondary plot, you know. That's a mistake. Of course it is. Yeah. But, but, you know, when you, yeah, anyway. So, so what Yellow Submarine <laughs> was, was it was a compromise in the fact that it was a Beatles film and no Beatles were involved in the movie. The Beatles don't do the voices in it. Uh-huh. The Beatles aren't in the film necessarily. 
You know, I mean, I know there's a film segment, but that was done later after they saw the film and thought, oh, this is actually quite good. I heard one of the reasons, and you tell me if this is wrong, Mm. uh, one of the reasons that uh, they didn't want to be as involved also was the Beatles cartoon, the TV cartoon had come Mm -hmm. out. And at the time, later I heard they were happy with it, (laughs) but at the time they weren't uh, pleased with it. That was the one with uh, Paul Fries doing the voices and whatnot. Okay, It was the same production company too, Al Products and King Features were the same people who did Yellow Submarine. And that cartoon was famous for being the first cartoon cartoon to ever feature uh, real people. There was never uh, a cartoon before that actually had people that were actually like alive, you know, in hmm. modern day. Okay. So that was the... That was the what about one. the Warner Brothers cartoon with Jack Benny as a mouse? Well, Jack there Benny was go. not a mouse at the time. That's a good point. Um, and it wasn't a weekly cartoon. <laughs> so, um, But yeah, they weren't, they weren't pleased really with... Uh, that didn't portray them as, uh, you know... So they'd been burned a little bit mm, by cartoons in the past. Later, I think that's they probably seemed true. To, later they seemed to like it. Uh, and one of the voices from that cartoon uh, then became, I think, Young Fred in this one. Like the guy who did like a lot of... Okay. The, two, okay. At least two of the Beatles' voices. He came over to, to this. So, mm. you know, there wasn't hard feelings, I suppose. <laughs> the Yeah, because... Well, I'm sure that there were different... I mean, whether they liked or didn't like the cartoon, I mean, it was probably very limited animation, the the Beatles cartoon. It certainly was. I think it was more that they they had grown out of that mop-top uh, presentation that the cartoon was still kind of st- stuck in the past, stuck in the Beatlemania Beatles. Right. And they are, you know, making Revolver, making Sgt. Pepper, you know, and so they're they're being kind of presented in this backwards way when really they're out constantly moving forward. You know, and I can see that they didn't Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, yeah. And apparently, Brodex, uh, you know, lobbied Brian Epstein for over a year to make the make Yellow Submarine, and you know, finally, I guess it was the last resort for Epstein to because they needed to fulfill. They had one more picture left on their contract. Okay. So they had to make a movie. There was no ifs, ends, or buts about it. Okay. And so. What, How do we make a movie without the minute? That's right. How do we make a movie with limited involvement from the Beatles? So, right. so when he signed the contract with King Features, he promised that they would provide three new songs for the film that would be written once the film treatment was completed, and they would they would be um, related to the story. So, now once the deal was signed, uh, the movie just became like a running joke, because whenever like whenever somebody wasn't working in the studio, John Lennon would just say he'd just say something like, uh, "It'll do for the film." That was his response. So what what the film became then wasn't about them writing songs to, you know, based on the story treatment, which they probably never read. They just would dump leftovers. That, so, And so, then the film would have to make them make sense? Make. Or not. Or incorporate them or not incorporate Frankly, them. Frankly, if, if you've seen the film, and I'm, I'm going to assume if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> yes. you probably have. Hope Maybe so. the songs make sense with what they're playing over. Maybe they don't. You it, know, some of them do, some of them don't. I mean, some of them really do quite well. Yeah. Uh, but others, you know, yeah. it's just a nice song while some craziness happens. Yeah. And uh, so they actually they actually uh, went one over that. They actually provided four songs. They're not necessarily related to the film, but they provided four right. new songs that had not and, been and released. And by the way, now's a good time to mention that we're not going to cover the film itself in, yes. this, in this podcast. Uh, we will at the end, when we're done with our albums, we're going to cover uh, the films. We're going to do one episode about We're going to do one episode about the films. Uh, so we will cover it uh, more thoroughly then. In case you listen to this and go like, hey, why don't you talk more about that? Uh, well, we're, we will get to it. We're just going to be talking about the album itself. And, uh, you know, yeah. this is, we're talking about this because this is what led up to it. <laughs> well, the film came out, the film came out in um, England quite a bit sooner than it did in the States. I think in the States it came out in November. Did the album come out before the film or after? Well, it's, or the same it's curious. So the film came out, um, just looking at, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. Absolutely. I, I wrote it down. 
because I was uh, looking at something else. Let me just find it here. Now, so it now came you, out might, in, you might hear Dave uh, rustling something here. <laughs> That's called paper, because unlike the young people of today, Dave yeah. is a Luddite, and he enjoys printing stuff onto pieces of parchment. Yes, I do. And so, uh, yeah, I, yes, in bits of lambskin. <laughs> uh, it was released on the 17th of July, 1968. Okay. The album itself was not released until January 17th of 1969. And oh, Why? Part of the reason for that was because the Beatles were working on White Al- the White Album, mm-hmm. and they didn't want anything to interfere with th- that release. They wanted that release to be the first album to come out on on Apple. They didn't want the Ye- the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, the thing they didn't really think very much of, to be the you know the flagship release for their new record label. And so uh, it got held back, and there's other reasons too that the, for for why it got held back, and we can talk about that during during okay. the. Okay, so the if thing. we had gone with your original idea for this uh, for our podcast, and we're talking about things chronologically, yeah. we would have talked about this album previous no, no, to no. the White it, Album. It came out before. It, it came, came out after, out, it came but out it was after. produced before the White Album. Was it though? Uh there you go. Listen and learn. Okay, I will. I'm talking to the listeners. Okay, all right. I'm like, um, I thought I was part of this podcast. That's weird. All right, I'll, I'll just be back here if it needs me. Oh, do you want to listen and learn too? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, so like the, like I say, it came out in July. So yeah, like a whole almost a whole year later, here the album comes out. Partly they held it back because of the White Album. Yeah. And in fact, even on the British version of the, the cover... Um, there's the, there's a difference between the American and the British version. The British version it came out. It had a review of the White Album on the back cover. It had a little note from Derek Taylor, who is the uh, kind of the. It Beatles had a PR. review of the White Album on Yellow Submarine. Yeah, that was what I had from a critic for the Observer. Right. It had a the American one had a it had a retelling of that the Yellow Submarine story with some extra pictures. That's nice. I understand. Which, yeah, that. that's a good that idea. That makes sense. Okay. Makes sense. But that's like coming out with, it's like Stephen King has his book mm-hmm. it and yeah. on the back of it is a review for Carrie. Mm-hmm. Like what would the, what's the point of, what's the point of that? Like, does that make you go, Oh, I shouldn't buy this. I should get the white because album because the Beatles were disowning it in a way. They were either, either even further distancing themselves from, from the release. And I mean, uh, Yellow Submarine has always suffered from that. Yellow Submarine is the ugly stepsister of the Beatles. You know, maybe not for us, but even for us, I think it's still the 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 taint still still you know kind of hangs around the Yellow Submarine's album. Hmm. And one of the problems with it is that it was not it was not issued or was not publicized or was not released or even talked about as the soundtrack album. You know, it was talked about as a New Beatles release. Mm-hmm. And so when people went to it, they found, you know, four songs they'd never heard before. And then half of it is sound, half of, is, half, is, is the score. Half of it is a soundtrack, which American audiences were used to. Because mm-hmm. Hard Day's Night and Help, both those releases, the, the North American releases, combined the, the soundtrack, you know, combined the orchestrations with some of the Beatles songs. Oh, did they? Okay, all right. Well, because with the Hard Day's Night, United Artists only had the rights for the songs that were in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. And I guess it would be the same with Help. So they couldn't, in, in North America, so in North America, they could not release a full album of all the songs uh, all from right. the album. They could only have the six songs that were in the film. So on the other side, they have some of the orchestrations that George Martin did, uh, you know, This Boy and things like that, Ringo's theme. And then interspersed with those would be the, the songs from A Hard Day's Night. Okay. And even then they left some of the songs off. They didn't put all the songs from A Hard Day's Night onto that oh no i guess that wouldn't be true i think they did leave off one but anyway and the same with help help was also interspersed the the british one is a full 14 song beatles album in north america help was six songs plus a bunch of of uh string you know orchestrated music that you put up with and so yeah when they got 
Yellow Submarine. And Yellow Submarine, in a way, is fairer than, than those albums. Like, those albums, if you're not interested in the orchestrated part of it, it's a real... You have to, like, sit through them or lift the needle up and put it down on the songs yeah. you want to hear. You know, Yellow Submarine was kind enough to put all the Beatles on one side and all George Martin on the other. So if you're not interested in, in the orchestrated stuff... And uh, and it's sad that you wouldn't be because it's actually really good. Yeah. But if if but you, you can understand why, yeah, if you want, you can just you know you can listen to one song till it's white, to one side till it's white, and the other side is completely pristine, you know, mm. and untouched, no crackles or any pops <laughs> on it. And so, so yeah, I think that so so to the, still still like I mean, people talk about the songs like they're leftovers, you know, they didn't put on put on any songs they liked on it, you know, that has two songs that are already. A, issued one was in in england it wasn't though like um um uh what the, the uh song oh, shoot all you need is love mm -hmm. is um you know it was only a single it was never released on an album so in a way that's not so bad for british i mean you've got to british put people. yellow submarine on yellow submarine the yellow you submarine ha song you have is pretty no obvious. choice yeah there you go yeah. and if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, double double down on a song all you need is love isn't a bad one to have on that i mean it's kind of you got to have it on this album because yeah. it's how the movie resolves it's the point of the movie you know so yeah you gotta have if you didn't have it on this album that'd be very strange well actually even after the release of yellow submarine the beatles had second thoughts about it because it came out in january and so in march uh, 1969 like in the spring they uh had they produced a uh, it was a seven inch it would have been a seven inch ep mm -hmm. like a single that ran at 33 and one third rpm and it would have and there is a tape in like the EMI library. There's a, a compiled tape that's been, it's been uh, compiled and banded. So it's all ready to go as a master tape. And it has, on side one, it has only a Northern song, Hey Bulldog, and then Across the Universe, which wasn't in Yellow Submarine, but it was going to be like their little, a kind of a bonus track. And on the second side, it would have had All Together Now and It's All Too Much. And so they, they, uh, I guess they talked about it enough to get it to that stage. And across the universe still hadn't been released yet. Like the it was had been given to Spike Milligan for this worldwide World Wildlife Federation album. Uh, but did I say give? You said it was given to Spike Milligan yeah, for the World Wildlife. The across the universe, yeah. yeah. Across the universe. I thought I said a different song title, but anyway. So across the universe, yeah, it was given to Spike you Milligan. Stand uncorrected. <laughs> but it still hadn't been released. So if it had to come out on that on that EP, it would have been like a bonus track that no one had heard yet. And, uh, a good bonus track. Yeah, it would have been nice, but uh, I guess they decided that it would be bad faith that for the people who'd already bought the the you know this the uh, LP to then have to go. Or this EP came out. There was kind of like a better deal that you didn't get all the the George Martin stuff on it. So yeah, all, so they didn't they go always, that way. They seem to always want to be fair. They didn't want <laughs> to the point of not putting their singles on their albums. Yeah, you know? so yeah. They, they didn't want to rip people off. They want to give people something new. Sure. Maybe that's a maybe that's a nice thing about them. All right, sure. so. We can just start with the album Let's now. Let's just get right into it. Let's get right into okay, it. Okay, now we have talked about the song Yellow Submarine before. Yeah, I don't think we need to go too much Where, into well, it. Well, what album was it previously on? It was on Revolver. Okay. And I think it works really well in Revolver. And what's interesting, oh, one more interesting thing about this album is that, um, oh, I guess I could talk about it. But uh, when I was, uh, I'll talk about it in a bit. But one, what I was listening to this is I was thinking to myself, how great Yellow Submarine sounds. Like what a great song you know just i love the drums i love the drumming in it it's just the kind of bass drum sound that that ringo gives it because he's it's like one of the only times in your life that you'll hear like swinging bass drums that's you know so it's really uh it's a real treat and i you know i even i was kind of like when i put it on i was kind of like well i'll skip over yellow submarine but as soon as it started 
was like, oh no, I'll listen to Yellow this. Submarine. This album, just uh, as a whole, feels like a good way to get the young audience, like the really young audience. Mm-hmm. Like if if you're uh, if you're someone who's like a teenage girl, you just turned twelve, and mm-hmm. you put on the White Album, that thing might freak you out. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of what uh, yeah. on that thing? But I think so. You put you put this one mm-hmm. on. This is your Christmas present. Yeah. Uh, then uh, yeah, you're gonna enjoy the whole thing, and then flip over the other side. Mom and dad are gonna enjoy that <laughs> while you have a little Maybe. tea. Maybe. Why not? It's relaxing, and and there's really nothing on the album that you go. What did I just hear about uh, marijuana and sex? N- none of that. It's just like a nice uh, yellow submarine, and everything's fine. What? What's? Uh... Yeah, I guess. Well, the Beatles did grow up. Did grow up with their audience, mm-hmm. so the audience who was with them in sixty four, sixty three, sixty four, you know, were okay with the White Album, but though that audience's brothers and sisters who were maybe maybe twelve and thirteen when the White Album came out, it wasn't for them. Like there yeah. was a whole new musical movement, like the bu- bubblegum and stuff like that, that filled that gap that the Beatles left behind. The Monkees, you know, filled it for a while, and then we move on to like the. The bubblegum kind of era of the 1910 fruit gun company. Well, there was and all still, kind of I mean, there was still like a new audience that was interested in the Beatles mm. because of the cartoon we just we just talked about. I mean, there are there are kids that yeah. didn't know the Beatles as musicians and just knew them as cartoon characters. They were the equivalent of the Archies, yeah. You know, or Josie and the Pussycats or what have you. You know, so it was like, oh, what's uh, what's next for me if I like this? And well, I think yeah, they would have been. Sub- I think that's true. I mean, true they, to they, a degree, but they would have been more real than that because the Beatles were pretty well known, absolutely, and they, were real, absolutely. They they were so. real, but every Saturday morning, because you didn't have a lot of choice, yeah. you know, you, you had three channels, mm-hmm. and you probably, uh, you know, you know, so one in three shot, you're going to be watching the Beatles, and that's that's your idea as a little kid of what the Beatles are. Now, your transition from that to Yellow Submarine isn't uh, isn't too large. Your transition from that to Helter Skelter, a little bit harder if yeah. you're, uh, you know, uh, 10. Of course, the other albums are still available, too. That's true, but as a kid, you probably are not going to be buying... Too much on your own, you know. You got to be careful. You never know. And you're a parent. A parent would put this on and feel completely comfortable. <laughs> um, would they until it got to the next song? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't think there's anything that the parents the would. Psychedelic. Grab a, uh... It's psychedelic, but it's not sexual, and it's not no. you know, light a joint and let's go for a ride down the river of uh, you open your mind and death isn't real. You know, it's it's you know, it's a, it's okay. Let's get to the next song then. Uh, so, the next song is only a northern song, yeah, which is uh, a big uh, "To Heck with You" yes. to uh, from George Harrison to, to a other... recording company. Well, to the other Beatles, right? But wasn't it wasn't the label Northern Records? Was that? Am I wrong about that? Northern Songs, Nor- Northern Songs. There yeah. you go. So, well, it had t- it had two meanings. One thing is it actually dated back. It was it was the first song that George recorded during the Sgt. Pepper sessions. So it was recorded before "Within You, Without You." And it was pretty much, as soon as it was finished, it was shuffled off to one side. It was not going to be considered as, as releasable on Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so it kind of like the album that it found its way onto, it's a contractual obligation song. And, and it's that, a song about being a contractual obligation song. <laughs> it's a song about being a Because George was signed to Northern Songs, the same way that John and, and Paul were. Right. Northern Songs was a, was a publishing company set up for the Beatles. But it's set up when people like to... Uh, to exploit other people, so thank goodness that doesn't happen nowadays. We've completely yeah, we've gotten completely away from that. that. Yeah. So, so uh, Dick James, who was like he was once a songwriter singer, he was a friend of George Martin. He approached Brian Epstein and suggested that the Beatles control their own publishing, which is a very good suggestion. The problem was is he took fifty percent of the of the the sh- the, the shares, or fifty percent of the profits of the Beatles' songwriting. John and Paul each got fifteen percent. 
and Brian's NEMS Enterprises, they got the remaining amount, except for 0.8%, which went to George. Right. So from when George wrote, say, a song like uh, Only a Northern Song, he actually earned less from that song than John and Paul did from his song. Yep. So no wonder he was bitching. Yeah. That's what you would say. And and I just like that the whole song Look, well, listen, first of all, I like the song. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. I like the song. I think on its own, if you don't know that Northern Songs is mm-hmm. a label mm-hmm. and he's going, It doesn't matter because yeah. this is only a Northern song, to heck with it, you know. It what also are you had do? another double it had a double meaning for him too, in the sense yeah. that only a northern song also meant only a person from Liverpool. Right. As it disregarded by the southern part of England where, you know, who are snobs about the north. Right. So it also has that element to it as well. So you could take it in both ways. And I also like, I also like that it's just kind of, it's kind of a funny song, you know? You yeah. might listen to, like, it's got a thing that, uh, you know. George is a funny guy. Yeah, George is a funny guy. But it's got a thing sort of like Glass Onion as well, where mm-hmm. it's, uh, you're talking directly to the listener. Yeah. And just going, yeah. you know, in, in Glass Onion, you know, hey, you heard about this thing. Well, let me tell you about this thing. And this, here's a secret for you, buddy. And in this song, it's just like, hey, you're listening to this song. You might think that we're screwing up. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. This is completely intentional, <laughs> you know? And it's, that's yeah. that's a pretty funny uh, little uh, bit. It has a very, um, oh, I think I think it has a very Bonzo kind of feel to it as well, mm-hmm. with kind of mad trumpet playing and some. Now, of when the you say Bonzo, effect, that's the Bonzo Dog Duda Band, right. yeah, who were a British uh, kind of a British comedy act that kind of grew out of this sort of neo vaudeville movement that happened in the British uh, music scene in the mid '60s, and um, so. So yeah, well, they're in Magical Mystery Tour. They they sing a song and they play a song and they that wrap it well. up actually. Yeah, the and final song. yeah, and so so it has that element to it as well. And it yeah, George's sense of humor and everything. And I guess when he wrote it, he was still I think he was still kind of in the midst of that kind of funk that he was kind of seemed to experience post touring when he kind of felt like I you know I don't want anything more to do with the Beatles. I'm I'm out. You know, and he pretty much told Brian that he was finished. And the only way Brian could convince him to stay in the band was to just promise him, well, we're not going to tour anymore. No more live shows. And I still think George was kind of like, but, you know, okay, that's fine. But do I really want to be in this band? I'm basically a junior partner, yeah. you know, with two very powerful individuals, you know, who obviously are, you know, have the most of the control of that, of the group. You know, and he could go on out on his own and, you know, and maybe it wouldn't be as popular or as big, but he would be... George Harrison. Yeah, even if you've got a quarter of the Beatles' fame, that's still insane. <laughs> still insane, really. Yeah. But and you know, you're just fine with it. Whatever you get, if that's what you want, that's you're fine with it. If you know, if you leave a group, mm-hmm. you know, everyone faces this. When you leave a, a a brand, you will never be as popular as that brand, it's, or very rarely. You know, it takes something very hard. I can't think of too many people who've left a, Man- a popular group. I, well, Menudo. I can think of uh, of that guy. Who? Who? Oh, okay. uh, Vita Loca. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also, Justin Timberlake. You know. Yeah, sure. I mean, but it's very rare. It's, yeah, it is very rare. I mean, it takes a special person. Yeah, George Michael would be another example of someone who left a group. But in all those cases, they were leaving. I guess I mean that it run its course in a way. I mean, you know, like well, I mean, I shouldn't really say that. I don't want to because I was going to say I don't think any of those groups were like. Error defining, but but they were for they were for the kids at that time. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) I know you're trying to be nice and good. Good on you for that. (laughs) Doing a positive spin on uh, on all that. So yeah, there actually is a a bit of Beatle myth that this song was written at the last minute in the spring of 1968, which is not true. It was not written in 68. At at two in the morning, while the London Symphony Orchestra sat waiting for the song to get finished, (laughs) and 
and in fact, the Beatles actually never used the London Symphony Orchestra. They never contracted them. Okay. So the story is completely fabricated. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking, I wonder where it came from. And then it occurred to me, didn't I read that in George Harrison's book, I, Me, Mine? I don't have the book. I only read it from the library because okay. when it came out, it was a, it was a, um, it was a book where it was like a, what do you call it? A boutique book. Mm-hmm. It was very expensive. It was like a hundred dollar book to buy it. So basically the only place you could find it was in a library. And so I remember signing it out and reading it. It's an interesting book, but I seem to remember that story being in it. But anyway, if it is, it's George misremembering the past. Okay. Or maybe a story that was, you know, started off as a good little tale to tell people became more real over time. Yeah. If you've got that book, anyone out there, and I'm sure someone does, please let us know if that was the case. Yeah. When you're saying the symphony's showing up, like I love the idea. They're lo- waiting. They're yeah. waiting for him. Uh, well, They're sitting there. Uh, here's what I wonder about that. If that did happen, and I guess it didn't happen, but the symphony does show up. To mm-hmm. certain things, they show up. Yeah. Now, if you're the symphony, do you have to always dress up like in the tuxes and the whole thing? Like, no. say you're coming to the studio, are you mm-hmm. wearing the? Are you wearing your khakis? Your evening are you dress? wearing your sweaters? Are you just wearing a well, t-shirt? I think like, at that time, you? at that time, it would have been suit and tie. It would still have been a suit and tie. You, yeah. I wonder now when they do it if they Even uh, the, if they dress up uh, yeah. or not. It would be strange to see like this like the London Symphony Orchestra yeah. just in their casual Friday wear. Well, even the bands were expected to come in a suit and tie. Yeah, I for, guess that was their, the time. It yeah. was it was your job. Yeah. You're showing up for work. Of course so you, you were. Wear your uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was your that course, was your uniform. This, yeah, I like though that you know I mean when uh, when they when they uh, used to be playing like John would play nude occasionally, and then it goes to and now it's time for the suit and tie. And there we go. <laughs> All right, big uh, yeah. With, with with George, what you're saying, I mean, you're a young person at that time. You're getting this degree of fame. That's a weird thing, mm-hmm. and you you know you've got people constantly whispering at you. You you could do better. You're my favorite. You yeah. should these guys are holding you back. You're always going to have those whispers mm-hmm. in the ears. Mm-hmm. Always because someone thinks they can make money off you so yeah. someone's going to be saying that to you constantly and uh, you know if you're open if you're open to it that can that can be a little weird yeah and i think we were talking last week when i when i or not last week but the last show last episode about brian epstein and how i kind of came around to thinking of brian as the fifth beetle and i think that's another another example of that is the fact that brian could you know he was he was uh intimate enough with all the beetles that you know, he could bring them down from, you know, bring, take, talk them off the ledge. Yeah. You know, George is ready to jump. Just, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. You know, and there's Brian. You know, like, you know, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. You know, we can reach a compromise. You know, and, you know, you're involved in a group of people and with people you respect that you don't want to, like, let them down. And there's all kinds of things working for the Beatles. I mean, once Brian was gone, that aspect of it was, was gone as well. And it became much harder for the band yeah, to the stay together. Yeah, the father figure is gone. Yeah, yeah. Now, <laughs> and John now Lennon the kids are himself, living alone yeah. in a house and, uh, you know, <laughs> they may have to make up your own rules. Yeah. And here comes Lord of the Flies. And, uh, yeah, John Lennon himself said the Beatles ended when Brian Epstein died. So and I think that's true. I think it is true in the, in the sense that they ended as a... That version of the Beatles That ver- version of the Beatles ended and the, 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 the end of... The end was be- was begun. Well, you know, it felt, the, the slow winding down. It if started. I was, to, if, I mean, I don't know it as intimately as you, but it feels to me from what you've said, the Beatles as a band ended then, and them as individual musicians playing together is what you were getting at that point. But yeah, sure. they're definitely going. But even in their that own was starting was by the time White Album that was already starting. Oh yeah, it's such a it's such a diverse album. You know, you can tell this isn't a unified <laughs> yeah. force. This is yeah. individuals all working together and just uh, you know and, and doing stuff in shifts. So when they were recording this song, what's interesting is they, they recorded, they did, you know, they did their backing track and then they did a bunch of overdubbing onto that. And then they went back in and they erased all the stuff that they'd added to it and they started all over again. 
And that's when they added uh, the trumpet, that kind of crazy trumpet being played, which was played by Paul. And there's also, there also a glockenspiel being played by John. <laughs> so these people playing unfamiliar instruments just to add some sort of texture to it. And <clears throat> then they added uh, vocals to Take 11. So this would have been Take 11. And so actually, what they, so what they did actually, they had two different takes of the of the song. They had you know, one take, and then they had a different take, which was Take 11. So they added the vocals to Take 11. And then, so they had one track featuring drums, piano, guitar, and tambourines. Then they had another track that featured bass, guitar, offbeat drums, double track vocals, and a guitar solo. So they had two, so basically what they had to do was take those two and combine them together. So once again, it involved, because they didn't have a track, they only had four tracks, so they had to, they had to double up on two four tracks. Okay. So you, they could have seven tracks of instrumentation and vocals with one track acting as the pulse to control to control the the other the other uh, machine and so they um so what they had to do was they so they they had sync you know they had to synchronize machines and then mix them together mix down from those two machines down to one single single mix and because it's so ha- it's so impossible to get the two machines to play together you know it took a long time to get it done and so they did one mono mix and that's all they did wow they okay. didn't do a stereo mix for this song and there's never been a stereo mix for the song until they released, I think, in 1998, the the Yellow Submarine uh, songbook. Yeah, so that's the first time that there was a stereo mix of it. Even on the uh, even on the 2009 uh, stereo one, which was I was listening to the stereo Yellow Submarine, the CD remaster. It's a mono version of it. Oh, all right. Because what they had like on the stereo version of Yellow Submarine, the album was was a duophonic. A fake stereo version, mm-hmm. the enhanced stereo, where you just you just kind of separate into two sides randomly things, and so you end up with these kind of just chunks of stuff coming out of both yeah. speakers with no real sense to it. This is like the early albums where you had like all the Beatles' vocals coming out of one speaker and all the Beatles' instruments coming out of the other speaker. That's not really what stereo is. Yeah, it does not help. Yeah, the 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 thing. Yeah, okay. And so yeah, so that's. That's what happened, and so yeah, it's uh, so when we we're saying that it's a stereo, it is a stereo album, it, like the white album, uh, the stereo, the mono version of Yellow Submarine was just a fold down from the stereo, so they just took the stereo mix and just squashed in into mono, and but because of the complications surrounding only um, uh, Northern Song, because of the, the the mix complications, it only had the mono mix, which at the time was fine because mono was more important in '67. That's a weird thing about Sgt. Pepper. It was basically right on the edge of the changeover from mono to stereo. So, like, you know, we're like, so you have, you know, what's, which is crazy, right? You have these two crazy psychedelic albums where the, be- the, the real mix of them, in both cases, in Magic Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper, are mono in this very controlled, you know, you only hear what we want to hear mix. Yeah, it's not. And, you know, and not in this kind of crazy instruments all over the place mix that you get with stereo. And so, yeah, and just a little short time later, suddenly mono is out. Forget about mono. It's all stereo. And you get White Album and, and, uh, Yellow, Yellow Submarine that are just full downs. And I think like, I'm not sure with, 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 uh, Let It Be, but, oh, I'm Let It Be would for sure then. So, cause Abbey Road was no mono. This is, it was a stereo by that point. Who cares about mono? And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I love this song though. I like mm-hmm. only a Northern song. Me like, too. It's like, I really think, Sneaks like, up on you, goes places. It sneaks up on you, and I think it just suffers from the Yellow Submarine curse, the curse of the Yellow Submarine soundtrack album. <laughs> you know, this is the fact that you've heard people say that it was cast-offs, there was stuff they didn't want, 
And so you come into those songs with that expectation, and then you listen to them, and you and that's well. I mean, coming take. coming out of uh, coming out of the last couple albums, when I hear the you know coming up, I'm like, all right, it's one of these, and I like that it comments on it, yeah. and just like has fun with it. Sure. So yeah, yeah good on them. Good I'm on. all I'm all for it. Good on them. All right. So moving on to uh, the, the next song there, which track is number three, all together now. Yes. And uh, this to me feels like uh, I mean, if you're a British. If you're a British lad, yes. uh, come Christmas time, you yes. are taken to a panto. Exactly. And at a panto, mm-hmm. uh, there will always be a sing-along. Yes. And that's what this feels like. A sing-along. Like- and also things like where you're supposed to like do something to make something happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if you clap your hands, Tinkerbell will, Tinkerbell live. will live or things like that. Right. So in this case, like at the end of the film, you know, John Lennon says, we've just heard reports that even bluer meanies are coming. So come on, everyone. We, the only one way to get rid of them is to sing. And so then the song starts yeah. and they have the bouncing ball and they have, and I remember seeing it, you know, I first saw Yellow Submarine as a very young child. I was probably maybe grade four, grade three or grade four. I just happened upon it when I was flipping around on the TV one day. And I maybe, yeah, I was probably grade four because I knew who the Marx Brothers were at that point because mm-hmm. the opening of it really reminded me of the Marx Brothers. Just that kind of open freeness of just the absolute absurdity you know, the fact that they can walk in a door and a train can come on a door and you know, it just, it, it just caught my, that attent, my attention, my particular mind at that time. And I absolutely fell in love with the film. But I, and I love the ending too of just having the Beatles show up and then sing this great song at the end of the film, you know, and just have this kind of sing out, just fantastic, you know, and I still feel that way about it. I love this song. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate when people say, oh, it's just a dumb, repetitive song and it says all together now 54 times. Well, of course it does because it's a sing along. Yeah. Know, of course it says it. Have grand- you heard Little Brown Jug? <laughs> it says it like 454 times. Wow. You counted. Good for you. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my grandparents are, uh, from Lancashire and they used to tell me that, um, so they know how many holes are in Blackburn, Lancashire. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Did you want to know? Enough I can to, look that up for you. Enough to fill the Elwood Hall, I think. Yeah, yeah. I could give you a specific number if you need it at a later time. Uh, but they were they were saying how when they went to the the movies, okay. one of the things you would have at the movies, you mm-hmm. would have you know your newsreel and what have you. Sure. You would also have a sing along. They did that in the states as well. Yeah. Uh, so if you watch old cartoons, there are cartoons that have. That's why I said Little Brown Jug because right. I remember seeing a follow the bouncing ball cartoon of Little Brown Jug. Where about one minute into you're really so sick is, and tired of so little brown jug. So com- this is a this is a common thing. Yeah. Why I'm bringing it up is the England is because you know yeah. people in England are familiar mm-hmm. with this thing. Mm-hmm. You know when you go to the movies is you sure. do a little sing along. Yeah. And they're all game. And also by the way, it's much more of a singy culture in England. Like uh, okay. you would have pub songs. Yeah. Someone starts singing and well, then everyone knows sure. everyone knows the song. So uh, it, it might be a little harder to get an American North American yeah. audience yeah. Uh, even at that point to to start singing. And but a Canadian like, audience, forget about but it. But a British audience, hey. <laughs> We're going to have a sing-along. Darn rights we are. And here we go. Well, think about Magical Mystery Tour where they have the accordion. They have Shirley Evans playing the accordion on the bus. And everyone knows the songs. That's the thing. Of course, that makes me think of the scene in um, It Happened Happened One Night with Clark Gable and uh, and I can't remember her name. The Frank Capper film. Okay. It's not Myrna Loy. No, no. It's not Uh, Myrna Loy. It's, okay. She had a French French name, kind of French sounding name. Uh, Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew. That's right. And they there's a scene in there where they sing uh, the man on the flying trapeze. Yeah. There's a person playing, and they all sing along on the bus. You know, I think yeah, there's just a different different time as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, different generations. You know, different than us nowadays. Yeah. We'd be singing singing along to Skrillex. Yeah, it feels it feels. I, I like it sometimes when the Beatles slip into something that 
you could tell was really comfortable in England. Mm-hmm. You know, you could tell really comfortable. Like, you, you, if you watch some of their live performances, John really likes to be the sleazy compare. Like, kind uh, yeah. of the guy that Eric Idle would play in yeah, the Monty Python. Like, right, yeah. Hello, everybody, and ladies, and how you want. Yeah, oh, yeah. you know. The little pencil mustache. Yeah, a real and... slimy guy. Yeah, it was just yeah. like, the ladies will be as so, You know, he <laughs> just really enjoys yeah. doing that kind of thing. And yeah. I get the feeling with this song that, yeah, it's fun. They're having a good time <laughs> with it. So <laughs> that joy, that joy kind of bursts out of the song. And if you don't like it, I think there's something wrong with you what's what's weird is that and some of the things i was reading it suggests that altogether now was written as paul's contribution to our the, our world like when they needed something to do for the our world okay but it doesn't make sense to me because it feels like it's such a movie ending moment that that he wrote it with the idea of having the sing-along mm-hmm. for the end of the film because so it, i can see like the, the the point of that was to have a song that people in uh, in many languages could sing something so guess, repetitive yeah and you know this definitely can be sung almost by yeah. anyone in any, they could do the chorus for sure yeah so yeah. yeah i could see i could see why you'd think that okay yeah, that's possible and also if you're once again i'm i'm going with the scenario of you know, an album that you want to play for your 10 or 12 year old, you know, Beatles fan. This is a song no parent is going to object to. Uh, it's fine. There's no hidden messages in this that I can think. Oh, wait. Can I take my friend to bed? Sorry. I stand corrected. There's something in there that maybe they'd have a problem with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean, couldn't even mean that though. I mean, it could be like just a sleepover. Sure. Nice you know? slumber party. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Why not? When I was a kid, my friend and I was coming How over dare slept, you assume something there? Yeah. We slept, we slept in the same bed when sure a friend came over. Sure, you did. Nothing visit. happened. Oh, of course We're not. We're fine. Of course we're not. Who's saying it did? Just little this is kids. not a place for a confession. I thought we're confession. having a nice show. It's just little Why kids. Why would you bring that up? The it's, guy might be listening you, right now. You weirdo. It's just little kids. <laughs> um, you know what's curious when you're when you're talking about Yellow Submarine when the song's on it. You know they they were all, the, the weird nature of it is they were all recorded before the White Album. Mostly all recorded before the White Album. So so like they are like like um, all together now was recorded like a day after they recorded Baby You're a Rich Man. Okay. So they were at Olympia Studios recording Baby You're a Rich Man, where the guy drove them like a slave master and got them to, you know, record and mix a song in one six-hour session. Okay. And so then they came back Dave's the next day. Dave's actually mate. doing the whipping motion with his hand huh? while he's doing That's that. That's fine. I'm talking. No, it's good. And uh, then the next day they come back to Abbey Road Studios. And what's interesting, George Martin was away. So it was just Jeff Emmerich and the Beatles doing this song. So the Beatles were kind of producing themselves for it. And I guess they kind of took the spirit of the night before and they did this song. It's a, kind of a simple song, but they did it all in one six-hour session. They got it mixed and all done in one in one night. Good on. So, yeah. it's uh, So the next song. Okay. Hey, Bulldog. Hey, Bulldog. Which I think for most people is kind of the highlight of the of the album of you know of, of Beatles songs on it. It's got a great intro. The reason, holy cow, it's oh, a sure good it intro. It's like something's that. Whoa, whoa, I'm in. Yeah. I just want to say the reason that it does so is because it's kind of the one song that's escaped the curse of Yellow Submarine soundtrack, and in, in the sense that it was written for it and not written. It, and not like a cast off that was kind of pushed onto it in people's how people view it, right? right. So people see that song, they're like, "Oh, that's a legitimate song on Yellow Submarine." All the rest of them aren't legitimate, but the, the Hate Up Bulldog that was a legitimate song. Okay, that was really written for the album. Good. Unlike Only Northern Song, which was a cast off from Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> it wasn't good enough for Sgt. Pepper. You know, Sgt. Pepper was a pretty good album. If something wasn't good enough for Sgt. Pepper, it doesn't mean it wasn't a good song. Yeah. It just means that it didn't fit what 
the the kind of the the theme of Sergeant Pepper. I'm seeing the you know? person that has that objection, and they're they're sitting in a room with their headphones on and they're a little smug. They're sitting there, and it's like uh, good for them. You know what? They can enjoy that world yeah. where you tell me what's legit music, you tell me what's not, and the rest of us will be over here dancing <laughs> and right. having fun. But you go, you do that, and if you want to come dance with us later, yeah. you take your headphones off and you do it. But you write that article. You know, to the newspaper of music. I don't know what I'm talking about at this point. But I'm you're trying to think what you would write to back in the day yeah. when you were upset. To the to the New Musical Express. There you'd you write go. your you'd, you'd write your stern letter. Stern letter, dear good, sir. Good to do, sir or madam. Many people have been writing about the Beatles, and I just want to say Harumph. Harumph. Uh you're right. This song has a fantastic opening. Oh, it's great. It's a great opening. It has a great opening, but it's very reminiscent of the song that it came out around the same, it was done the same time, which is Lady Madonna. Yep. Because we talked about this song a little bit when we were talking about Lady Madonna, because when the song was recorded, what the Beatles actually were going to do was they had come to the studio to film promo footage for Lady Madonna because they were going to be away. So they wanted to have, you know, they recorded the song to be released while they were away at Rishikesh. And they also wanted some promo material to be available to be released while they were away. Mm-hmm. And so they came back to the studio and the idea was, we'll just film you pretending to record a song. But Paul said to John, well, once while we're there, we might as well do something. Let's not waste studio time. If you have anything, bring it in. And so John had a few words that he'd written down. And the song at that time was called Hey Bullfrog. And Bullfrog is still in the song, like off the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... Almost to the point where you feel like, you know the song's Hey Bulldog, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, hey, bullfrog. Oh, wait. I thought we were okay, but we're bulldog by the end. But it's bullfrog off the top. All right. So Cheers. a little, a little while before they did this song, uh, Paul McCartney had been involved in kind of a super session. He had uh, been uh, the drummer for for a recording of of Paul Jones, the song called "The Dog Presides," and uh, it was produced by um, Peter Asher, who is Paul's friend and also Jane's brother. And so he's producing this session for Paul Jones, who was the singer for Manfred Mann. And he'd left the band and he was kind of out on his own as a solo act. And so, and so they did, so Paul's on drums, Jeff Beck, uh, from the Yardbirds is on guitar. And then, uh, Paul Samuel Smith, who was also from the Yardbirds is on, on bass. So it's kind of a super session that had these really, you know, and so, but in the song, it's because it's called the dog preside. It's actually really kind of a great song. And uh, for some reason, it was put on the B side, and a, not a Bee Gees kind of a soppy song was put on the on the A side. And the way cooler song is on the B side, as sometimes happens, kind of like um, "Hello Goodbye" being the A side, and "I'm the Walrus" being the B side. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. And then, um, so <laughs> before but, they started doing double A side, but in the song there was barking. There was barking in this song because it's called "The Dog Presides." Mm-hmm. And so then Paul was in the studio doing "Hey Bullfrog," and I guess it inspired him. Just he started barking just without warning. Sort of barking, and so that kind of led to this to the change of the of the title, and to some of the lyrics and stuff like that. And then, because um, it was very loose, apparently, like when they started, John Lennon just told George Martin, "Just tell us when we get a good one." And they just played through <laughs> ten versions of it, and then they decided the tenth, they just kind of stopped. That is, that's the best, so we'll just stop at ten. And then they they added to it, and so they added like the fuzz bass and the and the fuzz guitar and everything to give that really powerful opening to it. You know, it really, really has that lead in. Yeah, and. Um, and so, yeah, and at the end of the song, it always, it almost always happened the Beatles would just joke around near the, because they knew the song was going to fade out. And so they would add a bunch of junk and just goof mm-hmm. around and stuff like that. And so that's what they were doing at the end of the song, like yelling back and forth and just goofing around. But when they were mixing it, they were listening and they thought, oh, this is kind of good, actually. Let's just leave it in. This is kind of fun. So that's what happened. I agree with their choice to do so. 
Again, yeah. makes it... F- okay, here's the thing. I'm going to keep going with this idea. Again, the 10-year-old, who doesn't like a dog? And it's ending with them barking like dogs and having fun. <laughs> having fun. So friendly, it's like, so going to nice. buy me a dog, the monkey Absolutely. Song. Buy me a dog. But so uh, it, this is... Yeah. So like I said, it was written specifically for the film, but actually for a long time it wasn't in the film. It was restored... In the late '90s, to to a, to one of the, to a DVD. Oh, was that right? But it was cut out for because of the length. Yeah, so oh, okay. it was taken out of the film. Yeah, so not many people saw the sequence for it until until much later. Oh, so they took out a whole sequence that was yeah. In it. it wasn't yeah. all right. Yeah, all right. I I'm very curious when we get to the actual movie and talk about that. Yeah, we will talk about that. That's right. All right, going on to uh, unless there's something else. No, on that's fine. That. We can go. Uh, we're going on to it's all too much. Yeah, another song recorded around the same time as All Together Now. And, uh, and now this is a George Harrison song. D- another George Harrison song. Now, is that a little bit of a slam on Harrison that this, that the album that everyone goes is not legit, is so Harrison heavy? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, that must make him feel good. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense that they're both, and, and cast-offs as well, I mean... Uh, to be honest with you, I love this song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this problem? song is just a great, yeah. great song. In you fact, see, to me... Personally speaking, All right, this, this is just to Dave. This song this is, is personally speaking. Okay. This is the star song of the album to me. Ah, okay. Like, I, I like. I like. Right. I mean, I like Hey Bulldog a lot. State your argument for for that. Then why is this the star song? Oh, I just because I just love how it sounds. I like that it starts off with a this Jefferson Airplane uh, distorted guitar riff that comes straight out of You Me the ba- uh, the ballad of You Me and Punil. Okay. And when you when I when I when you hear it, you're just like, oh, it's going to start off with you know, dun, dun, you know, it's going to have that song. Oh no, it doesn't. It has an organ instead. But it's really this comes right out of. And um, a lot of people have thought that John Lennon yells something before the song starts. And a lot of people have said said that he's yelling out something to to Yorma to Jor, Jorma Yorma Kokonen, okay. who was a guitar player right. in the Jefferson Airplane. But I think he's actually just yelling something like um, "Your mum" or something like that for your mum or something like that. Not for not for Jorma, but just for your mom. For your mom. It, it's hard to say what he says exactly. Mm-hmm. But uh, and he, no one's got a story about uh, why why that was or no. why he's saying for your mom. Yeah, it's just somebody just it's just yelled at the, at the beginning of the song. John Lennon often yelled things before the beginning of the song, as, as, you, as we've seen. If people he have, yells things at the end of the song. If people have heard, um, we we put a we put up on the on the Facebook page the first version of uh, Obladi Oblada. You're going to hear John Lennon yelling his head off both before the song starts and after the song. And in fact, John Lennon never did a count-in for a song, one, two, three. He would always do something jokey, always, without fail. Mm. He always did something silly. And Mark Lewison in his book comments very early on, he says, it's hard to understand why the Beatles, how they could do the songs without cracking up all the time mm-hmm. at his count-ins. Is that why they did All Together Now to force him to actually do a count-in? <laughs> well, that, <laughs> yeah, that's Paul McCartney, though. So. Oh, there you go. Okay. So yeah, it's. I'm thinking. No one's quite sure. I think it's to your mom, but it could be to your mom. Okay, this is another one of the many Beatles songs where you're floating down a stream. These guys have floated down a lot of streams <laughs> over uh, over the okay. years, and okay. uh, now we're floating down the stream of time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't. You know, you can't. I mean, all what you like about a song is subjective, so you really can't say, "Oh, I like the song because." But but you can. I love it's the, your podcast. I love, and you can say what you feel. I love Go the guitar it. in it. I think it's just a great guitar, and it's both George and John playing that distorted lead in it. So there's lots. It's a back and forth. Although the the beginning distorted part was played by Paul, mm-hmm. so Paul played the be- opening distortion, that kind of part of it. He did that, and then it was George and John who, in the song itself, play the play the crazy part, and I guess. Um, yeah, I just think it's fantastic. And it's just full of this, it's kind of a kitchen sink song in a way. Like, and it was recorded, it was recorded, you know, after the Beatles did Sgt. Pepper, 
I really think that they were kind of lost for a while before they kind of, we talked about it in the Magical Mystery Tour show, before they really bore down and started working heavily on Magical Mystery Tour, there's a period where they were just kind of going to studios, doing these kind of eight-hour-long jams, and for no real reason, and they recorded little bits and pieces of it, but it, and I think they're just working, working it out. They're just working out all the Sgt. Pepper, you know, all that hard work and everything like that, and they just kind of were still kind of carried on by the, by the, the, the force of it, you know, they're still being carried by that, and... But they just had nothing, no outlet yet, you know. So they're mm-hmm. they're jamming, well, you can't they're doing songs here and that there. Again, you've made your big concept mm-hmm. album, mm-hmm. and now what are you going to do? Exactly. You got to go back to being a band. You do another concept album. Well, but if you what, did they do another? <laughs> Magical Mystery Tour is kind of a concept, isn't it? I, so I it guess I guess it is. I guess it is. But it's it's not them in character, sort mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. you know the last one. I, this has one of my favorite lines in it. Okay. Philo- philo- philosophical lines, which is, uh, all the world is birthday cake, so take a piece, but not too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fabulous. Like that very much. And yeah. go, you know, good so, advice just all the way around. It's something about being everywhere and then back at home in time for tea. Yep. Which I like that too, that very parochial British psychedelia, you know. Yep. And then, uh, what's also interesting is, um, is near the end of the song, George quotes, uh, there's a song by the, by the band called the Merseys, who are friends of the Beatles. Uh, they had a hit in 1966 called Sorrow. And John, or George quotes from it, which he says, with your long blonde hair and your eyes of blue. That comes from that song. Okay. So I don't know why he quotes from it, but it's the heck. What the heck? It's a kitchen yep. sink. Throw it in. And also the, everything else is in the, the song. The more you give, the more you get, the more it is, and it's too much. That's, that's also quite similar to, you know, in the, and in the end, the love mm-hmm. you make is equal to the love yeah. you take. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're having lots what of. What you put out is what you take in. Mm-hmm. Don't take too much. Settle down. <laughs> it's all, you know what? This is all good advice. Yeah. Out there. Yeah. You know, in, enjoy, and it's a fantastic but, section of the, of the film as well um and then uh the what's fun is if you listen carefully near the end of the song they're they're saying too much they actually start saying tuba you can oh. hear them cha- start saying tuba if you listen carefully yeah and then they start saying cuba <laughs> i don't know why just for the heck of and it do, i guess and, and is, is there some people there going like oh they're pro-communist did mm-hmm. someone read into that and uh that kind of business i don't know I, I probably no one noticed it actually. Okay, you have to be listen, listening carefully, and then look. There's people at this point who are thinking Paul's dead, right? I mean, people are listening for clues and this, and listening backwards and forwards, and you know. Um, and then uh, I guess after they recorded, they, a little while later, they brought in the brass and one bass clarinet to play on it. And the brass part quotes from Jeremiah Clark's uh, "The Prince of Denmark's March," which is like a trumpet voluntary. Mm-hmm. A trumpet voluntary. I can't. It's the part that kind of goes da 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 da. You know, has that kind of. What does a trumpet voluntary mean? I don't. It's the a trumpets it's, have a. It's a fanfare. Cho- have it's a, a choice whether or not to play. Or it not? was a fanfare that was played okay. to announce someone. All right. So w- one example of a of a. It's not the Prince of Denmark volu- trumpet piece, but uh, the opening to Masterpiece Theater. That's a trumpet voluntary. Okay. Do you know the horn, horn yeah. part that opened Masterpiece Theater for years and years? That would be a, be an example of a trumpet voluntary. And so, for whatever reason, they quote uh, David Mason, who played the uh, piccolo trumpet on Penny Lane, and also played on like the A Day in the Life and stuff like that. He plays; he's one of the people playing on this part as well. And he mentions that once again, disorganized uh, session for the for the uh, typical overdubbing session for people coming in to do to do session work. No one knew what the heck they were doing, and you know what should have been a, a three-hour session stretched on and for five or six hours. And the other thing I was reading when I was looking this up, Peter Doggett, who I think wrote one of the best books about uh, the Apple Records debacle, he I was reading something that he wrote, and he maintains that it's all too much 
was briefly considered for the White Album, which is ridiculous because why? Well, because the song was in the movie that came out on the seventeenth of July. The White Album didn't come out until November. So why would they be considering a song to put on the White Album that was already featured in a film that was in theaters? Mm. Did you ever ask yourself that, Mister Doggett? <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. All right. I have nothing more to say with oh, this song. Oh, very strong opinions. He's <laughs> thrown, weird. Dave has thrown down his napkin That's on right. the table. Well, if you're he is say, walking away. If you're going to say it. Look at I the, said good day, look, sir. Look at a calendar. Good day, sir. <laughs> look at a calendar. Yeah. Learn some uh, calendar math, fella. Because he, he was saying that's one of the reasons why the the, the uh, soundtrack album was held up was because the Beatles were considering putting up It's All Too Much. Okay. Maybe there's a counter argument to that that we're not understanding. Okay. If so, Maybe so. Uh, please let us know. Mr. Doggett. As always, we take corrections. Yes. Mr. Is Mr. Doggett, Doggett is welcome. A, to, is Mr. Doggett alive? Yes, he is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I assume he's listening. Of course he is. He's a Beatles fan. Oh, he just listens to all the podcasts. <laughs> yeah. He's got a lot of time right now. He is now that guy with the big headphones sitting in the chair writing handwritten letters yeah. to magazines that no longer exist. That's so right. hopefully he will. someone will take him to the library where he can get on the internet, <laughs> log on to SneakyDragon.com, and, and let us know uh, where we're wrong about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're not. So, <laughs> the answer. Okay. That will be our reply. Uh, so moving on from there to All You Need Is Love, which is the uh, the second repeater song. Mm-hmm. That we, Now, uh, where was this song first featured? It was, well, it was a single. Yes. It, in England, it was only a single. Okay. Because it was in the Our World broadcast, which the Beatles, remember, we we're talking about that as the Beatles um, did a television show called Our World, which had 90 countries from the, around the world contribute little filmed bits and pieces uh, and... And then the Beatles performed live, and they're all everything was live. It was all done live because right. it was a satellite transmission, and so everything was timed to coincide around the world. So everything was all synchronized. So each country broadcast at a particular time, and it went so well they never did it again. They never did. Well, it's, I think it's a one-time only deal. Yeah. I think it's hard because what you know, like we were talking about, like Russia and the other Soviet bloc countries dropped out at the last minute. Mm. So you lost like seven countries. So you, you had to fill. So it would have been ninety-seven. It would have been 97 countries involved in it, yeah. And so um, the British, what they decided to do was to have the Beatles, the biggest import the, or export, the most fantastic, you know, what were they known for at that time? Not for the mustache. They were known for, not for the derby hat. They were known for the Beatles, yes. Okay. And so, yeah, so they decided that they were going to film the Beatles, and it was like a faux session. So you saw the Beatles, like a pretend session. And we talked about it, you know, it had like, uh, Mal Evans, the Beatles roadie comes in and clean, clears up some teacups, you know, while the cameras are on him. And then it shows George Martin and, and Jeff Emmerich in the, in the control room, kind of pointing, you know, bring in the session <laughs> session. They point, you know, it's sort of very, very imaginative, yes. very imaginary what a session would have been like, right? Obviously. And then it, you know, the beat, it kind of comes into the Beatles through the control room window. And then there, there they are. And, you know, it's this brightly colored room with all these signs saying love in various languages and Beautiful all the Beatles. All, yeah. The Rolling Stones are there and all these other friends of the Beatles are there and their wives and everything. And of course it was shown in black and white. So all the color was a bit for nothing, but it looked beautiful. If you look at pictures of it, it looks great. And, um, yeah. And so that was how it was first broadcast. And then like, like seven days later, it was in the shops and for sale as a single with Baby You're a Rich Man as the B side. Cause Baby You're a Rich Man was actually was kind of earmarked for the, for Yellow Submarine until it was hijacked and put onto the B side oh, of, right. of, of, uh, All You Need Is Love. And so, and I guess, you know, I can't knock them for putting this in the movie. It is kind of the theme you of the film. You kind of need it. You kind of need it. It's sort of the theme of the film. And it is yeah. kind of, it is, you know, great in that, in that setting. So, you know, 
I'm not going to knock the fact that it's on. I can see people why people say in the states were maybe upset about it being on there because they already had it on the um, Magical Mystery Tour album, which wasn't available in England at that time. All right. So people in England only had it as a single, and so they probably didn't mind having it on an album. It'd be very strange if it wasn't on the album. It wasn't on Yellow Submarine. Yeah, it would. It would be very odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a linchpin song, so you can yep. see why it's why it's there. You can see why other songs were left off that you know they didn't want to put every song. In '98, uh, Apple released a, a, a something called the Yellow Submarine Songbook, and what that did was it it has every Beatles song that's in the film on a CD. And when it came out, everyone was re- it was really exciting when it came out because it was the first time that all those songs had been rem- truly remastered for stereo, because the original uh, albums. The, well, I mean, I guess I should say truly remastered for stereo using like new, newer equipment, you know, going back to the tapes and getting all this, everything cleaned up and it sounded really nice and fresh and sharp. Like when you heard the Yellow Submarine songbook, you were so impressed by how all that, <laughs> by how the, all that stereo sounded. It sounded so good. I think that the newer ones are an improvement on that. But if you want to hear it, uh, only Northern song in stereo, that's the only place that you can hear it is on oh, that okay. album. So yeah. Um, but uh, so that's where the Beatles contribution ended. Now, a lot of people think that George Martin getting side two of the Yellow Submarine album was a bit of a, a favor given to him by Brian Epstein, a kind of a for services rendered favor. You know, what was that? What's the benefit to him on that? Well, he's on a Beatles album. He gets all the money for his song for all his right. songs. You know, so he's getting mechanical royalties right. for his his own compositions. He's getting paid for the film as well. He got paid for the film, but he also gets the he also gets the the mechanical royalty for his compositions being on the album okay. on a Beatles album. Yeah, not on not on a George Martin album. Gotcha. You know, Beatles album sold about you know four thousand to one, or maybe more than that, four million to one to a George Martin album of orchestration. I mean, that's, that's a good question. How much does like an album like this sell? Like how how many copies? I think. I think I think White Album was in, it was in eight million homes okay. within the first while, the first few months of its release. So Yellow Submarine would have been comparable, probably yeah. not exactly the same amount, because I think there would probably would have been some bad word of mouth that kind of dropped the sales a little bit, mm-hmm. including bad word of mouth from the Beatles themselves, and they're you know putting the review of the White Album on the back of the record. But uh, I think it would still would have been pretty pretty massive. I mean, George Martin himself would never have had those kind of sales ever right. ever. You know, and so let's let we, you know, before I used to argue as George Martin as being the fifth Beatle because of his musical contribution to the band. And of course, if I'm going to say Brian Epstein is, I'm going to, I'm going to take that mantle away from George Martin. It's funny with George Martin, he's both, he's both, uh, lauded and criticized. You know, a lot of people, credit him maybe over credit him for the, his musical contributions to the beatles but at the same time a lot of people take away a lot of what he did for the beatles you know it's it's this funny um if you read like if you read something about george martin online you and it has comments you get you end up in this kind of back and forth tussle between you know people who are martinites or mccarthyites and people who are leninists you know because lenin in his playboy interview um that he did just after the, or not sorry, Playboy, in his Rolling Stone interview that he did just after the Beatles broke up mm-hmm. in 1970, it was a very scathing interview. And it pretty much, he pretty much, you know, hated everyone involved in the Beatles in every which way. You know, Brian, Brian Epstein was terrible. George Martin was terrible. Mm-hmm. The other Beatles were terrible. And, you know, if you listen to, uh, Plastic Ono Band, his, his kind of, uh, primal scream album that came out around that time, it's basically the, um, the ver- the you know the verbal the spoken word version of that album is his Rolling Stone interview uh-huh. of that of 1970, 
And so, but unfortunately, what he said in that interview, you know, really affects how people look at the Beatles and George Martin and Brian Epstein. You know, I'm sure if you talk to, to, to John a year later or maybe even seven days later, he would have had a totally different opinion. Yeah, he just left home. But you yeah, know, he was, like, hey, what were things right. like with your folks? And then yeah. it gets into print and there you go. And I often... By the way, that's the world we live in now, by the way. Like, you, <laughs> everyone is saying exactly how they feel at the moment. Yeah. And it's in, it's now locked in forever, that's, by the way. So yeah. just heads up <laughs> as careful. to that. If there's a be lesson careful. to be learned from this. Yeah, be yeah. careful. And so um, what uh, he, he said in the interview, he said, show me some George Martin music. I'd like to hear some. To which the interviewer should have said, well... Yellow Submarine, if you turn over yeah. the record, there's like a whole side of George Martin music on there, which, by the way, John, is really good, really well-orchestrated music composed for the film. How do you think that would have gone over if he'd said that? I don't think it would have gone over no, very well. I don't think so either. I think that would have been the end of the interview. So bad saying, advice to guy in the past that I, we're I think, given. I think that John was... Um, he was a hothead at the time. He was a hothead, but he was also... I think he was. Fine. I think he was jealous of, of George Martin and Paul McCarthy's... Paul McCarthy? Paul McCartney's relationship. Um... You know, McCartney was very musical mm-hmm. and was very, it was very able musically. You know, he was one of those people who could pick up an instrument and just kind of figure it out. And that wasn't John. John, most of his music kind of follows a very linear progression in his music and is very verbal, you know. And although his music is very verbal, he was not a very verbal person. He actually had a hard time conveying what he wanted, you know. But I don't know if I mentioned, talked about it on the show or we just, if I just talked about it outside of the show. So I'm going to say it again. Which I personally, I think that George Martin's arrangements for John Lennon were his best arrangements. I think the arrangements that he did for like I Am the Walrus, for Glass Onion, for um, Strawberry Fields, I think those are his very best arrangements. The ones he did for for Paul McCartney, I don't think are as good arrangements. And why is that? I think because Paul McCartney had more say in what George Martin was doing for his arrangements. Mm. So when Paul wanted one, he would say to to George, "I wanted to I wanted to be kind of sound like Vivaldi, or I wanted to sound like such and such." And at that time, the Paul McCartney was just was just learning about music. You know, and a lot of his taste was being shaped by the Ashers, the family that yeah. he was living with. He wasn't letting George be George. Yeah. And so he, he wasn't able to get the benefit of it because he was That's keeping right. the control. Yeah. That's right. And so when, but when George Martin did his, his, um, arrangements for John, John's, you know, his things were kind of like, well, I wanted to sound like, you know, 4,000 monks standing on a hill or I wanted to, you know, he, so he would give these kind of general ideas of what he wanted. And so then it was up to George to take those very general uh, instructions and turn them into an arrangement. Mm. And, you know, often he was very clever, you know, where he would take the arrangement would be based in little bits and pieces of the song, say, like for Strawberry Fields, for instance, where he takes part of his arrangement is based in scat singing that the Beatles had done in an early version of, of Strawberry Fields that was, that we never heard. But because he knew about it, he took elements of that, their, their arrangement of their, of their singing and he incorporated it into his arrangement for this, for the Strawberry Fields. Very witty, very clever. And, you know, it works really well. And same with I Am the Walrus, where he has elements of that song that, you know, with the whooping and, and stuff like that, that, that come out of the, you know, out of what John's doing and the sound of the, and the sound of the, the, the strings in it reflect the, the, that police car sound that John has at the, you know, so very, very greater, you know, so it's unfortunate that John felt hard done by at that point in his career. And a lot of that feeling, mm-hmm is recorded for us to look back on and try to interpret rather than discount as, you know, that 
like you say, someone leaving home, shaking the dust of, off his feet, you know. And well, I mean, to me, when you when you're ranking, like when you do the fifth Beatle game, <laughs> um, to me, it's like saying, it is a game. You're right. It is a game because we all know that was Maria the K. <laughs> well, what I think is silly about it is, it's like it's like ranking people in a family and just going like, okay, they were the kids. Mm-hmm. Now, where do you rank? Who's who's the who's the who's the 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 parent that was the best? Was it mom or dad? People do and that. I, by I know. The they, way. I, it's I, not understand fair. They, I understand they do. But to me, it's you know to be corny. It takes a village to make the Beatles. Yeah. You know, the Beatles are there, but the mm-hmm. Beatles didn't do everything. And they had no. influences and they had people. And, and yeah. as we've gone, as we've discussed over all of our episodes, someone will come in with an idea. Yeah. That will change the whole thing. It turns on itself. And, you know, when they're smart enough to go, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's do it. Then then the magic happens and it's amazing. But, you know, when you start ranking in terms of important, you know what? You need mom and dad yeah. and grandma and Uncle Steve. And, you know, when, we, when we're playing the ranking game, what's the point? What's the point? You know, definitely you needed both, you know, Brian and George. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, and without, without either of those, the Jenga tower comes <laughs> crashing down. Well, I, I'll disagree with you to a degree that I think the Beatles would have eventually got signed to a record label without oh, George no, no, Martin. Oh, no, they would, but it would have been very but different. But it would have been very different, yes. Yes. It wouldn't have, because what George gave them was the freedom to be the Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, and... And you don't that, know if others would have. But he gave them tools to further themselves as well, you know, suggesting things like adding strings to yesterday. You know, he he took them out of themselves and introduced them to, to newer things and said, you know, how about this? Let's try that. Let's, do you know this? Well, that sounds like you know? you're describing a parent to, to some degree. I think there was a parental you know, you element to You, you him, want yeah. a parent who like mm-hmm. lets you be who you are and doesn't try to control everything that you yeah. are. And as we've just said, the child will always go, hey, we, heck with you at yeah. the end of it. And, you know, cause, cause they rebel. Yeah. You know, and that's, and, you know, as artists, you will rebel and, you know, not excusing sure. what was said, but. It's sure. not surprising. It's not out of character. And, uh, and take it with all the salt that you want. And he was a and he was a parent in the sense that he didn't he didn't mind that the Beatles took control of the sessions later on. He was fine with that. You know, there's lots of pictures of George They're growing up sitting perfectly happy behind Paul, who's at the mixing desk and is fiddling around with the, with the switches and things. And George is fine with that. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think yeah, he was because he loved them. You know, that's an important yeah. thing to remember when you're talking about George Martin. And it's them against the world. It's yeah. such a weird situation that they were all in. You know, who could they trust? Who could they talk to? Who could they be around? No yeah. one understood what it was like for them, but he was one of the closest mm-hmm. to, to getting it. Both of them were, were among the closest, you know. So, you know, it's you against the world. You know, it really does become a family dynamic. So so you agree with me that if that was the case, then he really did deserve to get a full side of a Beatles album given to him by Brian Epstein. You know what? There's no, there's no record of this. There's no. There is. It's called the Yellow, uh, Yellow Submarine album. No, but I mean, there's, there's a record right there. There's no we're, record. We're talking of, about it today. There's no recorded way to say that Brian Epstein actually did this. It's just people's. Yep. People assuming or people guessing. That's right. Predicting, because um, he was actually asked to do the music for the film by the director George Dunning, who was a Canadian. Uh, who, By um, the way, those of you listening uh, from outside of Canada, uh, you might not know. As Canadians, anytime yeah. anyone is a Canadian, yes. we must mention we must mention it that they are Canadian because it's just the way we are. <laughs> That's just how we are. We know everybody in show business, yeah. or historically, who yeah. has ever been Canadian. We do, so, we uh, do. yeah, and let's apologize for doing that. That's right. Once again, very Canadian very, very thing Canadian to do. Nervous. But yeah, so um, because you know, like King Features mm-hmm. was an American company, but the production for Yellow Submarine was all done in London. So is this King Features the same as the comic strip? Uh, King I, I Features. I think so. Yeah. All yeah. right. And so, uh, so yeah, the one. So 
which is one of the reasons why it was so great was because they took it out of the out of the hands of the kind of hacks that were working on working on the cartoon in in, in the United States yeah. and brought over and it was a way different crowd that was working on the the cartoon and so yeah so Dunning was the director of it and so he asked Martin to to do it and he had no instructions for him he just said well, do whatever you want do it whatever you feel like if you want to do it like a he said Mickey Mouse music but i assume he probably meant if you want to do it like Warner Brothers music where you can do whatever you want you can do whatever whatever you want to have and because the production time for it was only a year which is incredibly short if you think about it, right. an animated full like a feature ridiculous. length cartoon yeah. it was ridiculous yeah people worked in that film like crazy and uh so he was given the script George was given a script. He was given production sketches and storyboards to work from because there was no like normally when a person does the when a person does a uh, film, you know they have like the full film to work from to to put their composition ideally, together yeah. ideally, and then you know they'll direct you know which he didn't. So he was just given reels like over. T- I mean nowadays when you have a Pixar thing, they are correcting because you can because it's yeah. all CGI. Sure. Uh you can correct up until like a week before release date yeah. frankly. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Uh, but but back then you're right. They would probably have like had the whole film mm-hmm. and then now you uh do it on top top of it. Do you want to go do you want to go track by track on this or do we want to do it generally? We can do a little bit track by track. All right. Let's go track by track. But I just want to I'll just No, no, t- you're doing your context as well. Please. <laughs> Sure, I don't sure. want to ever interrupt the context. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So he was, so um, he was working from that. So then, and what the other thing was that Dunning told him that there, you know, he was, good, you know, I just want you to write the score. We may not use parts of it. We may end up erasing it in favor of sound effects or vice versa. We don't know because we don't know what we're getting yet. Yep. So we don't know. And I'm sure that's the same with people who compose for films as well. You you don't know nope. what's going to be used, what isn't going to be used. You just, except for films like uh, Empire Strikes Back. The music for that was recorded was was written at the same time as the soundscape was being done for it. Oh, so that's right. why you end up with things like where uh, beeps will like sound effect beeps will will turn into string parts and stuff like that. Oh, neat. Okay, because they were able that. to able to work together on it, which ideally it should be, but most cases isn't. So yeah, so Martin had a a moviola he installed in his office, and then he started getting the reel sent to him. And of course, they weren't in order, so you get reel seven, then you get reel four. But because he had this, the script and the storyboards, he was able to kind of figure out what he was looking at, and um, and that's one reason why the score is is in bits and pieces on the record. So you have like you know Pepperland and Sea of Holes and stuff like that, because that's the way he wrote it. He just you know I got okay, I got the Sea Sea of Holes section. I'll write this part for Sea of Holes, and so it was just that was the name of it. And um, so yeah, so he. So then the reason, one of the, one of the other reasons, uh, for the delay of the release of the soundtrack isn't just the Beatles, but it was also George because he did the, he did, he recorded the soundtrack probably at Olympia Studios. He recorded the soundtrack there, but he wasn't very happy with it. So he re-recorded it at Abbey Road. And so he didn't do that until, uh, near the end of the recording of the White Album. Mm. So in, in November, he went into Abbey Road. Uh, he, Ron Richards, who uh, used to work for Abbey Road and had left with George to, to start AIR, and uh, Jeff Emmerich. So this would have been Jeff Emmerich's first time kind of produce or kind of engineering a Beatles session, although not strictly true. He wouldn't do a Beatles another Beatles session until uh, The Ballad of John and Yoko. But he kind of did a Beatles session because he did the uh, engineering for this. And so uh, put your asterisks on that, everybody. <laughs> and then, uh, so... But, so I actually think it was kind of a clever idea idea to get George Martin to do the score for Yellow Submarine because he was so intimately familiar with the Beatles' music mm-hmm. that he was able to like not only you know 
quote he doesn't really quote from the very often but he uses elements of their music quite quite a bit in in the the flavors right yeah the flavors yeah. there and in his in his and so there's a lot of a lot of carryover from his score into the songs yes. into the beatles songs it's and then back into his score at all. yeah in yeah. a way that it definitely could be so i think so many examples not- in that film where you know just through kind of a, a, the smart idea works really well to make the film much better than than it could have should have as been as opposed to and i'm just going to throw back again to the cartoon series uh where you would have your standard cartoony yeah. you know background music that yeah. didn't sound anything like the beatles yeah. and and then lead into them all running through hallways mm-hmm. while their songs played yeah. and then yeah. it'd just be jarring and it didn't feel it like work it very well. but the flow to the flow to this yeah. in the actual film and we'll get to the film when we get to the film uh <laughs> really does work and Martin, I mean, he... It's inc- an effective, it's an effective soundscape that he puts out. Yeah. And he, I mean, he wrote a really sophisticated, uh, score as well. I mean, it has neoclassical elements, but it also has elements of modern music, you know, dissonance and sound effects and exotic instrumentation. And even things like electric guitar appears in it, like in the Sea of Monsters section has electric guitar. Mm-hmm. And, and I was kind of thinking, well, what's kind of like this from that time period? And the one thing that I could think of was Frank, the Frank Zappa album, Lumpy Gravy, which was like his version of a, of a ballet of, you know, of, you know, so his had classical instrumentation and electric guitar and, and, and elements. It's, it's much more cut up because it has these spoken word elements that are really boring, but spoken, <laughs> spoken word elements to it as well. And, but I think that what George Martin did was better than what Frank Zappa did, you know, in terms of incorporating modern, modernist elements with neoclassical, you know, and cause, you know, having like Raval and Debussy kind of like parts to it. And then kind of going back to Strauss and having these very string heavy parts. You know, he really, he really uh, made a, I think it's a really sophisticated score. And I think, you know, people who, once again, it's that yellow submarine curse, you know, where people just dismiss it out of hand and don't listen to it. You know, but if you listen to what he did, it's a very smart, very smart uh, score for Well, for something it. that uh, people have been saying when they listen to this podcast is they uh, they then go back and listen to albums that they are tracks okay. they have not listened to okay. in a long time. So we'd advise you do that. Yeah. You know, definitely give this a listen with this in mind. Uh, so let's go let's go through them, actually. Okay. Uh, so we're going to start off with Pepperland. Yeah. Establishing. So, yeah. Establishes a film and establishes Pepperland. Yeah. And kind of gives a, a musical theme to the film that you'll hear quoted back in other parts of the film. All right. In sad ways and different ways, you'll hear that theme and so it's, it's very it's very sweet it's it sounds old yeah it has like a piano kind of a piano yeah. interlude in it which no other no other section of the film does so and then it's very neoclassical so it's you know it's obviously like george is just trying to or is trying to create this sense of 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 the kind of uh tradition of the of these older people yeah you know this very staid you know because the beatles aren't there yet so you have you know these people kind of sawing away on their instruments and stuff like that and uh and then the lightness of it, the the string, the, the the string heaviness of it, gives you a nice contrast for the rest of the stuff that's coming. That's going to be very horn, and you know have a lot of bass and stuff like that to it, you know. And so it kind of gives this nice contrast to what's going to come up. I think it's yeah, it's very it's very good. And so then uh, the next one is Sea of Time, I think, which is where which is in the movie. I think when things are going backwards and then yeah. forwards. Am I right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And it has uh, well references within you without you because it has the Indian. It doesn't in the movie. I think it goes into when I'm 64. Am I right about that's that? where it goes yeah. in in the film? Yeah, yeah it yeah. leads in, it leads into that. But yeah, yeah, it's got a nice. It sounds twisted. Yeah. Sounds creepy, uh, floaty. It, well, yeah, yeah. And it kind of and it does recall the Beatles quite a bit because it it does quote a little bit from Within You Without You. All right. And it uses that kind of bendy 
when he orchestrated it, he orchestrated it to have bendy notes to imitate the sound of uh, Indian dilrubas, All right. which are a kind of a sitar-like uh, violin. And so um, it has that sound. One thing, on the U.S. album, Sea of Holes and Sea of Time were actually combined into one track. They weren't two separate tracks. So it wasn't until... Uh, Any reason for that that you know? No, I don't, don't know why. I really don't know why. It might have been an accident, actually. Hmm. Who knows? But yeah, they weren't. They were treated as one one track rather than listed. Yeah, I can't see. I can't see any reason to do that, yeah. and it would also look like less value for the li- for the listener. Yeah, you know, one less uh, one less track. But did they call it "Sea of Time" then "Sea of Holes" on on that? I don't. I've did... never seen a copy of it. I don't know if they huh. just bracket if they had a, like a slash between. Once them, again, like, if you've got a copy of that, yeah, let, let us, us know. Let I'm us very know. curious. Let us know. All right. Well, let's go to "Sea of Holes" then. I don't have much to say about "Sea of Holes." Me either. It was fine. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. It's. Does the job gets you there? You that. All right, uh, we're moving on to Sea of Monsters. Getting, sea of Monsters is interesting. Yeah. Sea of Monsters is fun because yeah. because you have like the part where because like, Sea of Holes ends with them picking up a monster. Yep, and then they go into the Sea of Monsters and and then and then Ringo checks himself out of the the submarine right and he's riding around with all these monsters. He's riding on the back of a monster. So right, and I think then like, there's like a U.S. cavalry yeah. moment and it's all reflected in the mitt. and um, one clever it's one. Pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy scene. It's yeah. a pretty pretty fun scene. And then the one is one quote in there is uh, he quotes from Bach's "Air on the G String," one of the most unfortunately named classical musical pieces ever written. <laughs> and uh, he quotes from it towards the end of the Sea of Monsters. It quotes this little bit when there's a cigar smoking monster that appears. And then, okay, there's a there's a joke. It's a musical joke because in England, <laughs> those are always good. And, yeah, that's right. Only if you're in Eng- if you lived in England, uh-huh. you would have known these TV adverts for uh, a brand of cigarette cigars called Hamlet Cigars. And in their commercials, right, kind of they used the Bach, they used this Bach piece for their commercials. Uh-huh. And so when, when this cigar smoking monster appears, George quotes from the commercials. And then when the cigar explodes, and of course there's that timpani, the timpani kind of roll, boom, and then they, the, the strings kind of make the laughing noise. Ha, 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 ha at him so yeah it's just a weird little musical right, joke you can there look uh, you can definitely look for those hamlet ads on youtube that yeah have them yeah okay okay i just remember like going to some commercial festivals and they would they oh. would ran a whole bunch of those in okay a row and they were quite yeah good. and so they use yeah they use the uh and then near the end of it there's that uh vacuum monster that appears that's yep, sucking up the other creatures yeah. and stuff like that and so then he grabs a corner of the screen and he sucks up the screen and then we're left with the white so what george did there was he orchestrated a 45 second backward section for the for the film, so what they had to do when they did it when they were perform when they were playing it, you know, it, it the first time, mm-hmm. um, they had to, when he was doing it for the film, they had to reverse the film to run it backwards so they could record the section for it so they could time it, and of course when they reverse it it was upside down so it's running backwards and upside down so as George said we didn't know what we were getting we didn't know how it would work, well one funny thing was the engineer in the original session, when uh, after they after they finished recording this part. He didn't turn off the red light right away, and George Martin is looking, and he could see him talking into his microphone. He's like, what is he doing? Well, it turned out what he did was he figured out, so what he was saying into the microphone was, yip, nir, yip, 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 and when he played it the right way around, he had figured out how to say, yellow submarine, take three, backwards. <laughs> and so he said it backwards, so that when it played, it played it sounded forward. This is a bit of a joke. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's kind of fun. So, uh, March of the Meanies. Oh, those Meanies. Uh yeah, once again, it's a really effective use of of orchestration to create mm-hmm. a sense of 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 sinister, you know, the sinister yeah, element. Sinister, yeah. And he's got the strings playing it in this very what's called a marcato style, which is a very exaggerated, accented style, which is basically the same thing he used on on Eleanor Rigby, which is a marcato style to have this really exaggerated playing. Uh, 
and this, so uh, it's very Hermanesque in that in that sense. Yeah, the film the film scared me as a kid, and the meanies were very very scary to, mm-hmm. to me as a young man. Really, and it didn't so, scare you? I didn't scare oh, me at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, jeez, yeah. Those I thought teeth, they were funny. Those horrific teeth. Uh, yeah um but uh so hearing this yeah brings back it's like listening to the soundtrack of a nightmare that you had when you were like six sure (laughs) then um well it's kind of interesting i was reading this interview with neil innes and he was talking who's also with the bonzos was on the bonzos did the the ruddles which he brought up many times yeah but um wrote all the music for the bonzos or for the for the ruddles and interestingly enough wrote all the music for the ruddles without listening to the beatles he wrote all the Ruddles music just from memory of what the what the Beatles did, because he didn't want to be influenced, mm. subconsciously influenced into kind of plagiarizing them. So he just wrote it from his kind of sense memory, uh, you know, of what the Beatles sounded like. Good sense memory. Yeah, really good. But that guy's a genius. Let's just say yeah, Neil, Neil Innes is pretty fantastic. It's just a pretty much out and out, just straight out genius. <laughs> yeah. You know, I yeah. uh, hope he has a long life. But after they after he passes, save his brain, figure out how that yeah. worked. He also did stuff with Monty Python as well. It's Absolutely, really good. he did. Yeah, uh, you're gonna see like in your Holy Grail. Yes, the minstrel. You'll see him in there. And he actually wrote he wrote the not unused soundtrack for uh, Holy Grail. That's right. But um, so yeah, he was talking to a string player who played on the on the uh, some Beatles sessions, and I guess Innes was asking him, well, how how was it like? And this guy said, well, this is how George Martin made us play, and he started playing his cello, and it was like he was sawing it in half. And he said that's how George Martin wanted us to play because mm-hmm. it made it more rock and roll. You know, give it more rock yeah. feel. And so, yeah. And so he kind of brings that into this song as well. Yeah. Well, the more you say about this, the more I'm glad that they did give uh, George half an album to really <laughs> give him he time deserved to shine. It. Yeah, yeah, he deserved it. And the other thing he did on this is uh, the Bosendorfer Grand that they had in um, in Abbey Road in Studio One. This would all have been done in Studio One or in, I don't know what, where Olympia, but he had him uh, stand on the sustain pedal and then drop a metal object onto the strings. To make these kind of rung wow, sounds and okay. stuff like that, yeah. So it gives it this different sound. Um, Pepperland laid waste. It's interesting, but because it kind of quotes back from the Pepperland score, but in a sad way. Yeah. So you have this kind of, I guess he wanted a sense of you're looking at this kind of post-war landscape, mm-hmm. and so it, it has this real sense of of emptiness, which British people would, would be have been very, very aware of. Very the aware idea, of. yeah. I mean, yeah. we we look at it in North America, yeah. you know, as as it is. But I'm sure, yeah, if you were British and you were looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing well, that you yeah. would have a lot of uh, memories, not of the Blitz, but you would you would know of. Yeah, well, you would this. know it from your parents, and you would be, it would be around you. It, it's still around you. You yeah. walk through you yeah. walk through London now, and you can still see I still see part, some parts. Those have been those have been preserved, but you know, in the sixties, there just parts they weren't preserved. They just hadn't got around to rebuilding Absolutely. them yet. Absolutely, it's so. a weird example to make, but there was like a Doctor Who film mm-hmm. uh, that they did, and I forget what it what it was, but it the, was the second one. The oh. Okay. Yeah. All right, but Invasion Earth. That sounds about yeah, right. Yeah. You guys know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, the Daleks had destroyed like a chunk of London, and all yeah. they had to do was just like take you to a place in London mm-hmm. that had already been destroyed. Like yeah. there's places sure. that you know. So and, Mar- so and Martin himself served in World War II. He there you was, go. He was not a. He never actually saw combat. He came came a bit late, but he did fly as an observer for the for the RAF. And no one wasn't affected. Like mm-hmm. so, even. You know, then even now, uh, those kind of images have a different impact on people in England than yeah, they probably would for to sure. North yeah. Americans. So we were nice, safe, nice and safe. And then we finish with "Yellow Submarine" and "Pepperland," which would be the only song that George Martin didn't write for side two, because it's basically just an ar- arrangement of "Yellow Submarine," mm-hmm. just as a kind of a, a heraldic song welcoming the Beatles to Pepperland, this, the heroes coming, and it kind of builds it. It, ha- it opens with a very, you know, brass heavy part of it but then it kind of moves into this kind of string 
uh, kind of a lighter version. And then it, near the end, it comes out again with a full orchestral, all the instruments doing this big booming version of, of Yellow Submarine. It's pretty exciting. And that's where the album ends. Yeah. Yeah. And so what have we learned from this album? We've learned sometimes we learn, you can do half an album without the Beatles and still it's an okay Beatles <laughs> still album. Still a pretty good album. And I think that, I think listening to it again that, and I, I would say I will point the finger at myself as someone who, who, uh, you know, judge this album as being less worthy than, than other albums. And listening to it again, uh, and I listened to it quite a bit because I would, when I'm doing my notes and stuff, I'm always listening to the album. Right. Uh, just for thoughts and stuff I can incorporate. And I have to say that I really, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I, I, it moved up quite a few notches in my in my. So let's get rid of the curse. Yes. Can we? We've done an let's exorcism with this episode. There is the no curse longer. Is gone. The nope. taint is gone. We'll just take it away. That's right. You know, good for you. The taint is gone. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. All right. So uh, that wraps up Yellow Submarine. This is, uh, those of you, which is it's good. This one was kind of light because the next one is going to be really heavy. Okay, but it's not going to be as heavy as the uh, we we as the two parter. No. We put a lot of time. We put a lot of our lives into the white album. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, we have a piece of merchandise okay. that I'm going to tell you about. Sure. Uh, as a tribute to our, uh, like on our Sneaky Dragon site, sneakydragon.com, we sell shirts, mostly shirts uh, for our Sneaky Dragon podcast. But we're going to have one now as a tribute to our two-parter on the White Album. Yeah. And what we're offering is uh, our what we call the White Shirt. Okay. Now, let me explain what this is, Dave. It's a white shirt. Yes. There we go. Okay, so that's it. It's just a plain white shirt. Okay. Now other people will look at it and just go, "Oh, that's a white shirt." But if you if you buy this shirt, yes, you'll know mm-hmm. that what we're doing. You'll know that it's a tribute to this oh. podcast. You'll yeah. understand it. Like we can autograph it for you if you want. We'll do that. Okay. Yeah. But if you just want it as a white shirt, it's a white and shirt. it's just a secret between you mm-hmm. and us, yeah. Listeners, it's a good quality shirt. It's going to be a quality shirt. Yeah. It will work as a shirt. Yeah. Like this is not a shirt where you've only got one sleeve. This will be a two sleeve shirt, and there will be. Well, a it's space. a double album, so it has to have two sleeves. That's right, and yeah. it will have. That's right, you have two sleeves because a double album. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, it will have a spot for your head, and that's it is. Uh, it is the completely Beatles for the needle to go through white shirt. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have some of those. Uh, have you settled on a price yet? Or this will put that on the website. It'll probably be a little cheaper than our regular shirts. Okay, <laughs> I would say. Okay, that'd be fair. Sure. Um, sounds, but yeah, go to our go to our website sneakydragon.com and uh, and go you know, look for the link or look f- along the menu. It's yield shop. Yep. Look there, and you'll find our our merch. Our merch. Absolutely. There. And as always, we love to hear from you. Please go there and uh, and post on our message board. We have a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, again, we, you we really emails. Enjoy you and can, if uh, you want to review the uh, podcast on iTunes, we always appreciate that. We love to read them. We do love to read them, especially if they're from the UK, because those have all been very positive. <laughs> yes, they love us. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. But for the tide that. has turned in the in the US ones too. I feel like. We get way more people who who get the show to enjoy what That's we're doing. That's fine. And yeah, if you've got something negative to say, we're actually we're okay as long as you're not insulting. We're absolutely fine with that. Yeah. That's great. Uh, so please, uh, we we unless it's against me, I'm completely not fine with. Oh, that's true. Dave yeah. is very thin. I'm very thin skinned They call him Dave the Onion Dedrick. <laughs> that's right. Uh, like yeah. just that the glass delicate. onion. Dave the glass onion Dedrick. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not only is it thin, but you can see through it. You can it. see through me, yeah. Very creepy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. And what album will we be talking about? We'll be doing day? Get Back slash Let It Be. Oh, okay. Yes. I know that's out of order in terms of release, but in terms of recording chronology, we have to do Let It Be slash Get Back because otherwise Abbey Road makes no sense. Okay, so you've got two weeks to listen to that. In the meantime, please re-listen uh, to Yellow Submarine, especially the B-side. 
and uh, see what you think. Give it a second chance. The curse is gone. We are done. Thanks for listening. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. All right. Have a good day. Bye.